0: You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio day. As we were singing uh, that last song, Living Hope, in many ways we could have ended the service right there. And just sing that song over and over and over again. Uh, there's not much more you need than to just actually live into those words. But I guess we'll continue for at least a few more minutes uh, together. I, uh, one of the recent uh, largely depressing but uh, really insightful uh, movies that I've watched is a, a movie called, it's on Netflix, called All Quiet on the Western Front. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you just did a like deep. <sighs> All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, someone can correct me, but it's based off a novel called All Quiet on the Western Front or a, a, a piece of nonfiction, I don't, maybe more nonfiction than novel, but basically describing uh, World War I. And I'm going to not spoil anything for you, but I'm going to give away the first five minutes of the movie. So don't worry. There's not many spoilers because it's, it's as sad as it seems. Uh, but the first five minutes go like this. Uh, it shows, uh, like, uh, zoomed up. It shows a shot up from in the trees, and it zooms down onto, in a sense, like a battlefield. And you hear guns going off, and all of a sudden you're met with a face of a soldier in the trenches. And then, uh, like, there's grenades going off, and there's uh, gun gun uh, battle happening, and the whoever's in charge of in the trenches says, like, hey, get up. Like, he's like... Uh, he has been frozen get up like run towards the battlefield so he gets out of the trench and begins running towards the battlefield and then all of a sudden you see all these people around him getting shot it's it's like really gruesome uh, and he gets to kind of the front of the line and he's so close in combat he has to like t- takes out his his knife now to 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 do this close combat battle and then right when he's about to hit somebody with his weapon it like, the screen changes and it just says all quiet on the western front in German on the screen. And then from there, uh, the next scene is the end of that battle scene where there's just bodies everywhere. And what's happening is somebody's going around, a soldier's going around and they're placing the bodies in caskets and then they're taking the uniforms and they're collecting them together into a big pile. That big pile then gets put in bags. Those bags get onto a truck. That truck then you see follow into a city into the city they go to a warehouse. In the warehouse the truck gets unloaded all of the clothes come out of the truck onto the ground. A bunch of women pick up the clothes and put them in these huge uh, buckets of boiling water to clean them. And you see the women cleaning these uniforms and then you see the uniforms drying and then from the uniforms drying you see them then after they've been dr- uh, dried given to different uh, seamstresses that then are repairing the uniforms. And then at the end you see the the then, like, nicely folded and pressed. And then it cuts to another scene. You see another soldier, a different one than you saw at the beginning. And he's with his friends. And he's very, they're all very excited to, to sign up for this war. And so they go to sign up without his parents' permission. He would forged his name. They're all excited about it. And they get in line to be inspected by the lieutenants or whoever's in charge. They walk up, and they look at his paperwork and say, You're good to go. And they hand him a uniform and he's all excited and he walks off and then he looks at it and says, oh, there's something wrong. He turns around he comes back to the lieutenant and says, hey, there must be a mistake. This, This isn't my name that's on this uniform. And he says, oh, this happens all the time. Must not have fit him properly. He rips off the name of the uniform and he throws it under his chair. And the last scene of the opening of this movie is all these names of different soldiers that he had done the same thing to. The vision of the movie is trying to show you, in a sense, a cycle of despair and hopelessness. Like, the movie has, there's no happy ending. It ends in despair and hopelessness. And maybe that's an extreme example, because World War I, specifically for the Germans, they lost millions of soldiers. But it is a small, maybe small picture on a global, uh, all through history scale of what often feels like a cycle of despair and hopelessness. Like, is there anything to hope for? Or is life just kinda like that opening scene where someone dies, they take his clothes, give it to a new person, and the cycle continues? I think of, uh, to, to make it less out there and more for our own hearts, Uh, we can also experience despair and hopelessness. We can become really nearsighted, only seeing the present circumstances in front of us. The picture I've been getting this whole week is like a window that uh, has a bunch of uh, baby fingerprints on it or is just nasty like my window, my back window at home. And you can be so focused on the window itself that you actually can't see through it to a beautiful backyard. All you see is the slobber marks of a one-year-old And dirt and boogers probably on there as well. We become nearsighted, we can't see there's the despair and cynicism in our own hearts makes us blind. Your circumstances can blind you. Maybe this is one of your circumstances: a broken marriage or relationship, crippling shame or guilt that you carry each day, physical limitations in bodies that don't work properly, an unwelcome medical or mental diagnosis rote work or a mean boss, depression where you don't really want to get up in the morning, family dynamics that are too painful to engage in, the loss of a close friend, mentor, or family member, a pattern of sin that's deforming you and those around you that you can't seem to shake, addiction, loneliness, a low-grade bitterness of anger that you carry with you each day, perpetual disappointment, When you think of that list, do any of those resonate with you? At least in some form or way. This isn't just happening in this room as I think about this list and the the stories I know that are present. It's also happening in the culture that we live in. Uh, There's a sociologists are using this term called deaths of despair to describe three types of death that are in many ways the leading causes of death in our society. The first one is uh, alcohol overconsumption. The second one is suicide. And the third one is drug-related deaths. Uh, During uh, COVID-19, at least the the recent stats and and study on it, is that those all have accelerated what they were before. Uh, I know even from this past week, in different circles that I'm in, two suicide-related stories. Like, is there anything to hope for? I'd love for you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. We're starting a new series in the next three weeks, trying to answer that question. But more than that, to give you three things that you need to be a faithful and present follower of Jesus. We're gonna, we were going to jump on from Romans 12. We've spent a whole uh, month in it. Is it a month? Yeah, something like that. I even heard it read, read at a wedding recently I was at. It was pretty cool. But no, we're going to stick there. Thanks to Sarah Hamilton's direction. Romans 12. We're going to look at really just one verse for the next three weeks. Romans 12, 12, but let me frame it with Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Romans 12, 11, and verse 12. It says this, Romans 12, 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And then here's the three phrases we're going to focus on the next three weeks. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. <clears throat> Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Here's what I want you to do. If you're new with us, this is what we do regularly, and so uh, it, should be, it should be encouraging and helpful. Uh, but if you're like, oh, I don't want to participate in this because this feels uncomfortable, you can do that as well. There's permission here. This isn't an expectation. This is an invitation. Uh, I'd love for you to turn to some people around you when you hear those three phrases, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer, which one do you most need in this season? Which one do you most need to both believe, but also to see embodied in your own life? All right, turn to these people around you, and then I'll call you back. All right, I'm going to call you back. We're going, to take a, uh, we're going to take a poll we don't, you won't have to give your reason or answers. You can keep those to yourself. But I would love to see, just to get a flinch of the room, how many of you said joyful in hope is the thing you most need? How many of you said patient in affliction? And how many of you said faithful in prayer? Thanks, that was really helpful to think through the next couple of weeks. Here's my question I've been thinking about all week in light of this first phrase, joyful and hope. What's the difference between optimism and hope? What's the difference between optimism and hope? I'm not typically a very optimistic person. I like to see the world as it is in reality. I've been that way for a long time. But I have a lot of people in my life that are very optimistic that I love, that I love spending time around. But maybe there's a third way, whether it's not either cynicism or optimism, there's something else that's needed. You need hope. So here's, here's a, maybe a simple definition of what I thought this week. Optimism at its best is simply a could. It could go that way. It could have that outcome. It is a possibility, right? Maybe even if it's one in a million in the worst form like you could win the lottery that's an optimism right but the chances are probably pretty slim but hope is fundamentally a will like this will happen biblical hope at least this will come about it's certain the word here for hope that's used by paul is really the simple definition is it's sure or certainty But how does Paul say that? Assuredness uh, or certainty in his current circumstances. Like if you know Paul's life as a follower of Jesus, he didn't have a lot of hopeful circumstances. He was in prison, he was beaten, he was lonely, he was shipwrecked. How does he hold to that will? And yet it's all through his letters. If you were just to look at the word hope and trace it through all the letters he, he's written, that's one of his primary themes. Hope, hope, hope hope, hope, and yet his circumstances didn't make a lot of sense. His circumstances could have been easily blinding like that window where you can only see the slobber marks, you can't actually see through it. So here's why I think he had hope, and this is probably the simplest sermon and the simplest idea that I've ever probably given on a Sunday, but it's, this is it. The reason why Paul had hope and the reason why you and I can be joyful in hope is because of two realities. That's it. Two realities. That Jesus died, was buried, and he rose from the dead. He's living now. You will see him face to face. I try to tell that to my kids, right? Like, you will see Jesus face to face. He's living. That's the first thing. Second, Jesus will return and he'll make all things new. That's it. That's literally all Paul goes back to over and over and over again. Jesus has risen from the grave and he will return. If those things aren't true, Paul would say we are the most to be pitied as a people. That we don't have hope, that we're actually just in a cycle of despair. And the best we could do is have some optimism that it could get better. The question is, do you believe that? And belief not just like you know it in your mind, and your head, but that it's actually the orienting part of your heart, that he has risen from the dead, and he will return to make all things new. Because everything else in between is going to be a lot of gray and a lot of uncertainty, and it's going to be painful at times. Hope can be very painful. Uh, American novelist Barbara Kingsolver, she says this, the very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. Under the roof of your life, Are those two things true, central? Even with the questions and discrepancies and disorientation in between, are those two things under the roof of your life? The resurrection and return of Christ. Uh, To transition from just a window that you look out into your backyard to what the church has had for centuries, which is a stained glass window. If, you're, if you've been in an old church, you've probably seen one. The beauty of stained glass windows was that they told for a illiterate, an illiterate people the gospel stories who couldn't read on a page like you just did. They needed pictures to tell them the story of Christ because no one could read other than the priests and a few educated people in the town. And so these pictures of stained glass, that's why they're, they're there, is to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and the gospels and the disciples. And the beauty of stained glass is that the light from the sun on the outside comes through the glass and gives you just a glimmer and picture of what is true. Think about the, the a picture of stained glass of Jesus' crucifixion. You can see it lit up, but the, the light is radiating from the outside. You actually can't see the sun. But your hope is that the sun is real. It's, it's a real thing that actually is creating the light that comes through the stained glass. It gives you a small glimpse of what is true. It's a lot how hope works. Hope is this picture of that you believe that the sun exists. And right now you might only be able to see it through stained glass. You might only have a shadow of what it is to come. But you believe the sun exists and one day you will see it with your own eyes. But the second part of this passage is not just for you to have hope, but it's a posture. It says joyful hope, joyful and hope. What does that mean? Uh, One of the uh, theologians that we spend a lot of time with in this church, maybe sometimes unhealthily too much, you guys can correct me later about that, Paul will for sure, Uh, but his name is N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright has this vision of a play, that the biblical story is like a drama that's unfolding on a stage, and his vision is that in this play, in this drama, there's five acts. You've been given the first three acts of the play, you've seen the script, and you know the end, but the fourth act has been missing. It's been lost for some reason. And so your job as a participant in this play, as an actor and actress on the story of God, is to embody those first three parts of the story and know how the story ends and then improvise in the in-between. Now, think about for a second if that was actually our story, that all of us were now going to be at a local uh, Broadway show here. We're going to be putting on some kind of theatrical performance, and we've been given this play, and we're embodying the first three acts, and we know the end of the story. My hope would be that as we give ourselves to the script, there'd be so much joy in the presence of that fourth act of improvising because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends, and we know where we've come so far. And that's basically what joy is here. Joy is understanding how the story ends, knowing where it's come, and freely living in the present. Like, if that's true, if Jesus has risen from the dead and he is returning, we should be the most joyful, freedom filled people on planet earth. We have nothing to lose, we have nothing to gain. We have all the time and the space to improvise in God's story, to faithfully play our role, but without having to be worried about the results or the outcomes. In a world that is so focused on outcomes, so focused on what uh, a business should become or what a company should grow into, uh, and so much fear and anxiety based on the outcomes, you know the end of the story. Jesus is returning. He's making all things new. All those experiences up here I listed broken marriages, relationships, crippling shame and guilt, physical limitations and bodies that don't work, diagnosis of both medical and mental, rote work or a mean boss, depression, family dynamics, loss of a close friend, a pattern of sin, addiction, loneliness all those things will be made new. All those things will be made new. That doesn't make it not hard, though, to live in the in between. Hope is painful. It is. But you know the end of the story. Here's my question for you. You don't need to answer this with your partner. But when was the last time you experienced real joy? Like real joy that comes from knowing that Jesus has risen from the grave and that he's returning. Like joy that creates so much freedom in you that you're unconcerned about how people think about you or you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You have so much joy. You You have nothing to lose. Like when was the last time you experienced that when you tasted just a glimpse of what that would be like? For some of you, you haven't maybe experienced that in a long time and it's hard to even imagine what a day would be like to live into those realities, to live into that kind of joy, with that kind of hope. Because we often don't believe and step into those things, we actually settle for other things that we think will create create meaning and hope in our lives. There's three things that came to mind this week for me. We either settle for pleasure, some kind of food or drink or comfort, or even sleep, to in a sense remedy our lack of hope, our lack of meaning. We need those things to provide significance for us. Or maybe it's power. Maybe maybe to frame it a little bit different word, it could be status. That if in my void of hope, if I get that position at work, or I get that position within my friend circles, if I get the position where people will listen and follow me, it will scratch that deep itch I have of meaning and hope. Or maybe it's our performance. Like an athlete chasing a championship or towards a goal, we believe that if we can master our performance, if we get the promotion we know we deserve, if we get the relationship we long for, The house that we envy, the things that our culture celebrates, that we will find hope and meaning. All good things of God's creation, all things that you were made to enjoy, not just as things that take the void of hope and joy in your life. Which of those are you pursuing maybe right now at the expense of real hope and joy? What pivots do you need to make To change, to say, actually, that thing that I long for, that I think will give me meaning and hope and significance. Like, it's actually God's grace and kindness that he hasn't given that to me. Because the moment I would get it, I would recognize how empty I felt. The moment I found my place in the position that I always thought I wanted and dreamed of, it comes up shallow or hollow, even if temporarily it really feels great. And gives me a sense of significance. Gospel joy is not a product of great resolve. But it's a gracious result of hope. Joy is not something that you do. Or that you work your way into. It's a result of hope. You don't have a lot of joy in your life. The indicator is not that you need to try harder to find it. Because joy is an outcome. It's a posture. It's something that stems from and grows from hope. What am I hoping in? So here's my question. I I actually would love for you to turn one more time to your neighbor. And this is the question. Over the next three months, how can you cultivate hope in your own heart? That would create joy. That would cultivate joy. Like what... What would it look like to cultivate hope? Maybe it means actually removing something, taking something away, or maybe it means reorienting around different things. But like, and not everybody has to share. This could be a really personal question. Like, how are you going to cultivate hope, like lasting hope, not temporary, that temporarily satisfies and then the next day you're, you're sick of that thing that you thought would give you the significance that you wanted. Like, how are you going to cultivate that as a follower of Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus, and you're like, I'm not really sure what that looks like, like, what are you hoping for in the season? Maybe there's something there that needs to be dialogued and discussed. That isn't necessarily a bad thing that needs to be like shoved away, like that's bad. But actually, it, it in many ways exposes what we're actually longing for. And maybe actually where Jesus wants to meet us. So turn to some people around you, or you can just turn to the person next to you if it feels too uncomfortable. And then I'll call us back in a couple of minutes. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And then check this out. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How does Jesus have joy in carrying the cross? That has to be an outcome of something else, a product of something else. You can't muster up the right attitude to have joy in carrying the cross. Jesus had joy because he lived with the end of the story in mind. He lived with the end in mind. Maybe you in a, sec- just a second ago were kind of stumped of like, it's kind of a weird thing to try to cultivate hope. How do you actually do that? That feels uh, intangible in some ways. Like, how does that even work in my day-to-day realities? Well, here's a simple start. To live with the end in mind, and you're gonna enact that in just a second. Because in a moment right here at this table, which is his body and his blood, you are enacting the end of the story, which is a great feast that Jesus has prepared for us, that we get to enjoy, that these kids that are joining us right now will get to sit with us as well, that we together get to feast with Jesus. So live with the end in mind. Would you stand with me? I'm going to have us say together the mystery of our faith and then I'm going to invite you to the communion table to receive from Jesus. It says this, we read this passage each week. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And now together we're going to recite, which is the mystery of our faith, which hope is a lot like a mystery. doesn't always make sense. There's a lot of gray in between the resurrection and the return. Am I right? but this is what we hold to in all of the circumstances represented in this room. Let's say this together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and feast.